From religion to wrestling, gumbo to grits, politics to poetry, and all things southern in between, this is Take on the South. Produced by the Institute for Southern Studies and hosted by the College of Arts and Sciences at the University of South Carolina, Take on the South examines the highs and lows of the American South, examines the truths and fictions of the country's most distinctive region, and picks the brains of some of its most accomplished students. To understand the South, you need to take it on, and that's what we'll be doing. Join us as we Take on the South. Hello and welcome to Take on the South, the show that comes to you from the Institute for Southern Studies at the University of South Carolina. I'm your host today, Jennifer Gunter. I'm the director of the Collaborative on Race in the College of Arts and Sciences. Today we're going to talk to John McCullough, whose friends call him Spud. He's a recipient of the Ellison Award presented by the Institute to help graduate students further their research. His project, uh, in his words, examines the impact of the coastal tourism industry on the language and personhood of native tour guides in their communities. He's a six-year PhD candidate in the linguistics program. His research specializes in ratio-linguistics, examining how language ideologies affect language style, performance, and expression, particularly concerning representation of marginalized speech communities. His dissertation focuses on Gullah Geechee, a minor, minority Creole language spoken along the southeastern coast. He uh, likes to say that he is indebted to the hard work, sacrifice, and enduring patience of the community members and guides who have supported this endeavor through their time, stories, and vast knowledge. Spud, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Thank you so much for having me. This is really exciting. So first, um, tell me a little bit more about the project that the Ellison Ward is funding. I would absolutely love to. There's a a ton to talk about on this, and I tend to kind of get on my soapbox about it anyway. So even having a venue to do this in has kind of been like a dream come true for me. Um, So the project really started off with looking at, of course, like Gullah Geechee kind of as a language and cultural icon anyway, right? So um, I'm from South Carolina, so um, I grew up hearing about, you know, the language, hearing about the people, and as I got into the linguistics program, I became more and more kind of concerned with a lot of the rhetoric around the community, which was that the language was dying, that it was disappearing, um, and what it looked like for people who wanted to bring it back, right? So uh, I wanted to look into first revitalization of the language, and then when I went down to Charleston, I went on some tours, I met some tour guides, and I realized that a lot of the work of revitalizing is, of course, in the hands of the community. And it's being done. It's being done in some really unique and exciting ways. So the research kind of started to form around looking at these uh, Gullah Geechee tour guides, right? So, of course, um, uh, I say Gullah Geechee is kind of a catch-all term. Usually in South Carolina, the term is more like typically Gullah. Um, If you go over to Georgia, it's more typically Geechee. There's some contention about which name is used where, for why, and for whom. I won't really bore you with the details. But uh, when I say it, just know that I'm kind of using it interchangeably. So when I say Gullah tour guides, talking about the same group of people. Um, there's a few Gullah tour guides down there, and I became really interested in looking at kind of their status as kind of community liaisons, right? 
So you have a bunch of really nosy people like myself included who go down to Charleston and want to know what this is all about, right? Like you want to hear what Gullah, what Gullah Geechee sounds like. You want to see what the people are like. You've heard these stories about islands like Sapelo Island and St. Helena Island being lost to time and Defusky, right? These places you can only reach by ferry. And so there's a, been a lot of this um, exoticization of the community of this idea of them being kind of primitive or closer to the roots of this, right? And so I really wanted to go see what these guys had to say about this, right? So, I mean, not, not only kind of bucking against my preconceived notions, but also, I mean, hearing it straight from the mouths of people who do this for a living. Um, and one of the main things I was worried about doing this research was, of course, um, as you can tell, I don't know if y'all can tell from my voice, I'm a like awkward white dude. So going into a very marginalized community, which has historically been very damaged by white supremacy, by, you know, segregation, Jim Crow, and the entire kind of kit and caboodle of, you know, history involving that. I knew that it would be very difficult for me to get the trust of people and go in and just ask them really nosy questions, right? Even though I might have good intent, of course, no one knows me from Adam, that might be a little difficult to read. So I kind of figured that if I talk to these tour guides, they're used to dealing with nosy people and nosy questions. These were a really good source of knowledge that I feel like people were only kind of scooping from superficially. And I really wanted to understand the ways in which they were presenting knowledge and using this language and using this culture to not only embody themselves, but also how they were kind of bridging between these two communities, right? So pretty much the interior and exterior community. So the research itself um, is really focusing on what happens on a tour. So um, what do they talk about? Um, how often do they talk? When do they slip into this like very kind of heavily accented Gullah Geechee and why do they do it? Um, and so what I've kind of seen during this process has been really exciting, right? Because you can kind of track when these kind of shifts, we call them style shifts in linguistics, right? When they kind of shift from this everyday talking register, this kind of like, you know, service, like you go to the DMV counter and you want to have a conversation with somebody, that kind of talk. And then when you slip into something that sounds like what people expect to hear from a Gullah Geechee person, right? This, this kind of sing-song intonation that people associate with places like um, Jamaican Patois, right? Or something like um, Barbadian English. Um, so I was kind of interested to see when they slipped into this, what it was used for, and whether tourists were kind of taking this positively or not, or what they were taking away from the experience. So I, I went on a bunch of tours this summer. The Ellison Award was foundational in that and allowed me to go on these tours and not only be a part of the tours themselves, but also do a series of interviews with each of the tour guides. And I think a really important part of this research is a lot of previous Gullah Geechee history or linguistic history kind of paints an idea of a monolithic community, right? There is this idea of Gullah Geechee-ness that is just one type of person, right? Again, the basket weavers you see in Charleston or the fishermen out by the docks. Each of these tour guides have incredibly like vibrant, very, very different personalities, very different goals for what they're doing. I mean, they're businessmen, they're like singers. I mean, they're artists, they're writers, they're activists, they're iconoclasts, they're all over the place. And that's fantastic. And, but they're all using their identity in different ways to do different things, to express different things, and again, to kind of commodify themselves and make themselves a business. And I think there's a lot of really interesting work to be done there to see how minority populations can kind of use this um, exoticization of outside communities and kind of weaponize it and do something with it, right? Because for so long, it was kind of used to just um, diminish them, to marginalize them, to kind of denigrate them. But watching people be able to kind of take agency in that and produce a product with it is really exciting. Um, 
And then, of course, I kind of get into the contentious stuff where I'm like, okay, are the expectations of the tourist shaping the tour itself? So do they really have agency in what they can and can't do? What happens if tourists don't get their kind of pound of flesh, so to speak? So I've also been looking at things like the reviews, um, which tell you a lot about the worst sides of people. Honestly, like I've learned a lot more about people than I ever really need to. Um, I've done surveys. Um, I bought all the tour guides books and kind of looked at what their books were looking at and like how each of them kind of presents themselves through like written artifacts. I mean, if you can think about something these guys have done, I have some kind of like I have something involved in it and I'm like very obsessed with them. And like I said, or like you said in the blurb before, I'm very grateful for their patience because I'm very annoying, can be very overbearing. But when I show up at that, like at the visitor center where all the tours run out of at about nine o'clock in the morning, I'm there all day just wandering around talking to people. So it's been a really great experience and the data has really, I mean, I, you hate to kind of clinicize things, but you say the data is wonderful, but the data really is wonderful. Um, it's been really exciting to see how these ideologies are formed and how people can really articulate these things. Because I, I think that that's something that's really difficult for a lot of people, whether they realize it or not, to talk about the ways they feel about language in kind of a way that escapes the ways we usually talk about uh, race and language in those intersections, right? Um, so for example, um, I'm studying a specific thing called post-vocalic artlessness, right? So we can think of it as how in Boston people say Paktika in the Havid Yard, right? Um, Gullah Geechee, like other varieties of African-American language, has this artlessness, right? So you'll see people say something like day instead of there, right? Um, but what I notice when I when I talk with these guys is, of course, when they're kind of using their tour, their tour guide register, when they're trying to kind of sound highfalutin and, you know, give the information on the tour, they'll use the R form. It'll be they'll say there. But when they want to present or perform this gullahness, they will lose that R. Right. And so even just looking at a single feature, we can see how they switch between these personae and they're used for different reasons at different times. And again, each tour guide does this just differently enough to make it really fascinating. Right. So um, one of the guides will just kind of randomly throughout the tour pepper in some like very like, again, heavily accented Gullah Geechee phrases. And he'll counter it with saying, oh, you can't understand the thing I'm saying. And that's kind of, and people kind of laugh at it and find it entertaining, but at the same time, it is kind of a commentary on the fact that this is a separate language. This is something that people can't understand. And when people can't understand a language, especially in somewhere where monolingualism is prized, like the U.S., uh, people tend to become very uncomfortable, right? There's a lot of anxiety that goes around that. Um, you've seen videos of people who say speak American in public places or yell at people for speaking Spanish, right? So what I think is something else really interesting about this tour is it's kind of a curated area to where this language can be used. Um, if you hear, if someone uses Gullah Geechee during a service encounter with someone in Charleston, there's a chance that that person will respond negatively, right? I can't understand you. You sound ignorant. Like all these kind of stereotypes that people have about Gullah Geechee and black language in general, right? This idea of, you know, double negatives are like bad English and things like that. So for having a space to where those ideologies can kind of be looked at and scrutinized, I think is really important. And it kind of inverts the power dynamics on its head because it allows people or allows these tour guides to say, well, you don't understand me and you're in my territory. Like this is my domain and it's your job to start to understand. I will give you the knowledge. I will provide it for you, but you have to do the work too. And I think that that's been something that's really great to watch. Um, and unfortunately, I don't have like really any exciting tourist stories. I was kind of not not for the sake of the tour guides, but I was kind of hoping to see like, you know, at least one kind of interesting interaction. But talking to the tour guides, of course, they've got anecdotes upon anecdotes upon anecdotes. One of the guys um, actually has a book called Tourists Say the Darndest Things. 
And you can imagine the kind of stuff people get on there and say. So um, not only has being on the tours been really fascinating, but even interviewing the guides and getting to know them. I mean, of course, as linguists, I think we often get stereotyped as well as being very, very data science or social science driven. We just go there, we pick up the data, we never talk to these people again. I could sit and talk to these guys all day. I mean, and I, and I often try to, and then I have to remind myself that they have other things to do besides talk to me. But I mean, the stories they have to tell, I mean, the things they feel about the tourism industry, about Charleston, even about each other, I mean, really tells us a lot about how minority communities operate, especially ones in an area that have historically been very not well treated, like somewhere like Charleston. And so kind of with the recent surge of Black Lives Matter movements and like local activism in the Charleston area, it's also been interesting to go on these tours and see how the tours have changed in the wake of some of this stuff. Um, for example, I started doing these tours before the Calhoun statue was taken down. So they would, of course, um, spend a lot of time talking about the statue. It's like it's can, you, can you explain to us the Calhoun statue? Sure. Um, yes. Yeah, so there is a um, giant statue and um, kind of the main drag of Charleston on Calhoun Street. Um, and it's, it is a statue of um, John C. Calhoun, who was a um, very famous South Carolinian politician, um, also famous among the enslaved community and free black community by being a terrible human being, to the point where they even had a nickname for him and would call him Kilhoon. Now, of course, like with all good, you know, Southern politicians, they erected a giant memorial in his honor on his passing. And it was very quickly defaced as much as possible by, you know, the like em emancipated populations. So then what they did was they kept building it, the monument higher and higher. And now it stood at a very high point in Charleston. I mean, almost to the point where it kind of it literally towered over the people who were once kind of enslaved under him. The irony not being lost on people through a very long legal and activist battle, kind of both wings of that kind of movement, the statue got taken down, which was amazing. So having these guides talk about the statue and have to kind of situate it in this ongoing history of, well, we're giving you the real truth and the real tour, but also we have all these symbols that remind us of this thing all the time. And then in the wake of that, it was a very different type of conversation people were having about it. Um, now, some of the tour guides are very much like kind of, they want to give you just the tour. They want to kind of give you what you expect. They don't want to ruffle any feathers. And by contrast, which I've also found interesting, a couple of the tour guides are iconoclastic. They want to have a tour that is specifically to give you the real truth or the uncomfortable truth or like to kind of make your skin crawl a little bit. I love both types for very different reasons. But I can also see how people could feel uncomfortable if they thought they were getting one experience and then got the other. So that's also been interesting is watching what happens when people walk onto the wrong tour bus or they think they're getting one thing and they get another. Um, for example, I took my parents on one who are both older white Southerners from this area. Um, and we went on one where the guy is, I mean, a firebrand. I, I love him. I mean, but he's been in it like he's had a very heavy hand in a lot of activism, especially in especially in the marketplace and representation of black um, black uh, shop owners or store owners in the marketplace. Because even though we know the market has kind of a sordid history, it's still largely a white own and run operation. So he was on this tour and he's, I mean, he's given us, I mean, the God's truth or like a very interesting narrative that goes counter to how a lot of history runs or the established history. Can you set the stage for us? So like sure. you go to the visitor center in Charleston and they have an several different options that, yes. that you can take. And you can kind of call ahead and you can kind of shop around, but they don't always make it easy. And we know that tourists don't always go in having done their research. And that's okay. I mean, you want to just go in and you want to just be exposed to it. So we have 
You have like the Gullah tours, you have the Gullah Gullah tours, you have the Gullah Geechee tours. So you can see why people might kind of wander into the wrong space. Um, and so you get to the visitor center, which is this kind of like, um, not abandoned, it's this renovated train station, right? It's, it's gorgeous. It has like all this very new, very kind of not gentrified, but very kind of like, again, highfalutin kind of setup, right? It's, a, it's where we want to kind of bring visitors in and be the ambassadors for them for this city. And so you go into this place and then you look out and you see like a line of buses. And in the summer, you probably have to reserve a ticket. Um, if not, then you kind of get, you know, first come, first serve. So you get on this bus and they're usually you know, very nicely air conditioned, got the screens and everything. A couple of them have drive these big Mercedes vans. And for the next hour and a half, um, for most of them, you're just kind of uh, driven around. Um, so they take you to different spots. Each one hits a lot of the same beats, but there's enough variation between them to where I, every time I went on a different one, it was felt like a totally different experience based on the person, based on their intent. And so, again, some of them go to places and tell you one version of history. And I'm not I'm not a historian, so I'm not going to say what is real or real or imagined history. And then you'll go on the next one and you'll get a completely different version of history, which I think is fascinating. I mean, we know that there's a lot of bias and subjectivity when it comes to historical narratives, especially for marginalized populations. And so people, again, having agency to kind of not write their own history, but also per, like also propose an alternative viewpoint, I think it's really important, especially for this community, which, again, has been told over and over again, here's who you are, here's what your history is, here's what your language is, if we even recognize it as a language, which historically it's just been seen as, again, broken English that's more broken than African-American English, right? So what these guys have really been doing is kind of putting the pieces back together. So again, kind of giving themselves agency in this, um, giving the language some kind of representation. And I think the important part of it is, I try not to get too capitalist or commodifying when I talk about it, but they package something of themselves to send home with people. And I do think that that's really important because these kinds of stereotypes about language and these ideologies spread among people who aren't in the community, right? There are very few community leaders who have a really loud voice that people hear. Um, for example, there's Queen Quet, who is like kind of the voted in um, queen of the Gullah Geechee Nation, kind of a independent, um, sovereign or semi-sovereign kind of nation state that like kind of or nation that incorporates like a lot of the Gullah Geechee community. But not everyone believes that she's doing the right thing or believes that she should be sovereign of anything. Some of these people just want to live their lives, you know. And so not, like any group, they're not a monolith. Exactly. Yeah, that's 100 percent it. And I think that that's very hard for people and hard for even activists, because especially nationalist activism requires some kind of monolith. Right. It's very hard to say we are a bunch of united people who are all very different. I mean, we understand that, but it becomes harder for people outside of that to say, oh, we recognize and legitimate that. Instead, what people usually think is, oh, well, if y'all can't even decide what you are, then, you know, and you have all these different pieces, then why should we recognize you? So watching that or watching the community kind of grapple with that, I think is really interesting, too, because, of course, there's no right answer. Right. You have people who focus on the activism. You have people who focus on the politics. You have people who focus on none of it. And again, just want to live their lives unbothered by all the stuff going on, you know. And so going on these tours, again, you kind of see different pull like a thread like different threads that are pulled through of people talking about this stuff in very kind of meaningful ways and again it's kind of interesting to not only see where people agree but where they disagree and the ways in which they do too so these tour guides all have a very limited economic niche right there's only so many tourists who go to charleston who look specifically for gullah geechee tours if they know what gullah is 
most people I talk to have heard of Gullah Gullah Island, like the Nickelodeon show growing up. Um, and routinely, we'll, uh, they would have people ask them, you know, take us to the Gullah Gullah Island or something like that. And they're like, well, that doesn't exist. But you're, you're on the tour, and that's what matters. So I think at the end of the day, what they want is to kind of spread this knowledge. And I think that this is a wonderful way to do it. But I think kind of the danger of it is we have to remember that most of these tour guides are kind of, again, kind of contracted through the Visitors Bureau, right? They're called ambassadors. They even have, you know, kind of this administrative title. And so I think they have to tread a very careful line of what is appropriate for them to perpetuate or propose about history and about themselves. Now, some of the guys, you can tell, toe the line on this and take it very seriously and try not, and again, don't really say anything that would rock the boat. Some of them like to dance back and forth on the line, which I think is very valid. But again, that raises the question of whose history are we telling on these tours? Whose like language are we using? Um, is it kind of done for the purpose of the community or is it done to serve like curious outsiders, right? And I kind of call it the Epcot effect, right? Like, you know, at Epcot, they have that world showcase. They have like a little Tokyo, a little Paris. You can go there and you can hear people speaking the language and you can eat the food. But I mean, it's kind of a cardboard backdrop. So that's something that my research is looking at because I worry that a lot of this is kind of a curated museum style expression of what these people really are going through, right? And I mean... Not to say that any of it is fake or disingenuous, but they realize that this performance has to be shaped on their paycheck, on who is listening to them, and if people will listen to them. If you went on a Gullah tour and you had someone who talked like me the entire time or looked like me, would you feel like you got the authentic Gullah experience? Probably not. You probably want your money back. I wouldn't blame you. So this really asks a lot of questions about what it means to be to have this Gullah identity what it means as a minority population. Do you have a responsibility to give your language to people? Is it okay for you to be isolated um, and like not share it with anybody? Do you, do you have to? We kind of are in this um, kind of postmodern period of history where we kind of want everyone to share everything with us, right? But this is a community that's been very historically stigmatized and you have to respect people's wishes if they say, no, I don't want to, I don't want to deal with you. Like, I don't want to do this. So that's why these tour guides, I think, are an interesting kind of exception to that because their livelihood kind of comes from having to answer these questions and having to be this liminal space. And so that's what makes it so interesting to me is because, of course, we know that minority communities have to do a lot of language change all the time. They have to accommodate their language. They know that there's only certain places they can use it if they want to be taken seriously, have socioeconomic mobility. But for these tour guides, it's something that's regimented. It's something that is part of their everyday life in a way that it might not be for other minority population or community members. So that's why I really decided to focus on them and focus on the language for this dissertation, um, just to kind of see the ways in which, like, what, like status quo pressures, mainstream pressures, white supremacy pressures, how people are affected by these and kind of how they circumvent them or work around them. Because, like, this is still a group of people who... I mean, against all odds, we're not wiped off the earth by all of the like terrible atrocities that have happened in the South. And even with like very, very stagnant, like economic isolation at a lot of times, again, due to like Jim Crow laws and Reconstruction era have have survived. Um, there's still a couple of these historical communities on places like um, Sapelo Island, again, Defusky, places you can only reach by ferry. And it's kind of sad. I mean, it's kind of sad because they were thriving communities at one point, and now there a few people are there, usually a few older people, and then you have a bunch of people like me who get on a tour bus or a tour ferry and go over and visit for the day and meet the locals and that kind of thing. But you have to kind of wonder, is like, what kind of legacy are we allowing people to leave, right? And so I think that that's something these tour guides are really grappling with as well, which is what I'm really interested in looking at. I was, so I teach Southern Studies uh, 
uh, I teach a course 1580 to 1900 here at the Institute. And yesterday we were talking about the Acadians um, who, you know, ended up in Louisiana. Um, and so when I was like reading your about your research, I, it did come to mind like the, the Creole, the Cajun and how um, there are people who give tours in, in New Orleans, in Louisiana, uh, and, and are also expected to perform Cajun-ness. <laughs> right. And so I think it'd be really interesting to take your research and maybe if somebody did the similar kind of research out of South Louisiana and see what kind of similarities there were. Oh, I would love that. Honestly, anyone who wants to collaborate, I'm always very happy for There's actually an article from this year, or maybe a dissertation, probably an article about someone who's studying kind of the modern iterations of Cajun, of Cajun kind of identity and how that intersects with Creole. Because a lot of people kind of conflate the two in Louisiana. Like, okay, like everyone kind of speaks weird French down there. So it's all Cajun or it's all Creole. And we kind of know that these are two separate things, right? We know we had the Acadians who were, of course, like, you know, Anglo-European, French. And then, of course, you have kind of the, like, uh, the mixed populations that um, came, like, post-slavery or even, like, during slavery. Of course, you have freedmen that are kind of the progeny of, you know, some interesting couplings with people who may or may not have accepted it. And so then you have this language that kind of develops as these communities do. And so, yeah, there's some very interesting things happening there right now in terms of, again, kind of these performances, right, of what it means to perform an identity, to perform even an ethnicity for a lot of people, too. Um, and it's interesting with the case of Cajuns and Creoles and Creoles in general, because I know in Charleston, for example, there's been cases of when people have been accused of trying to be Gullah Geechee when they're not. And so that raises a lot of questions of who gets to count in these communities. Do you have to speak the language? Do you have to have a certain ancestry? Do you have to have a certain locality? And I would imagine in Louisiana, it's the same way. Um, I mean, genealogy is something that's very important to a lot of people. And I know for I have a lot of friends from New Orleans, and they take that very seriously. They can tell you very far back about where everybody comes from and who was with who and, you know, who, yeah, who's in the family and who's out. And so, yeah, watching this personhood or like this identity kind of travel down the genetic or, you know, family tree lines is kind of interesting because, again, if you're left with this kind of modern contemporary people, what does it mean to be Cajun, right? Do you have to kind of have the accent? Or if you don't, how do you kind of show that identity? Do you wear a T-shirt that say, I'm Cajun, something so kind of explicit? Or are there other ways in which we show our identity? Because like essentially in sociolinguistics or sociolinguistics that a lot of us do here, it's really questions about identity. Like we frame it through language. And of course, we, we are obsessed with language as what we do. But it's really about how people decide or make who they are. So what choices are made for you? What choices are you conscious of? Which ones are you unconscious of? And how are we always doing this with language? And so anytime you have an interesting or what I think is an interesting situation like Cajun, like, you know, Cajun French or even the use of French in Louisiana, uh, the use of things like uh, Creole or even Yat, which is like kind of the dialect they speak in some of the words. If you ever heard it sounds like Brooklyn English. It's very it's very interesting. Um, and there's people are kind of claiming their identity using these kind of language variations. Right. And so. Yeah, I would love to see more research coming out of these places, especially when it comes to tourism, because I think a lot of these places have become increasingly reliant on tourism, which is kind of a double-headed or double-edged sword, because of course it's wonderful to have the tourist money coming in, but that tourist money only pays for certain things, or it only pays for a version of certain things that people want to see. And if they don't see it, that money is going to go away. For example, before this, I lived in Hawaii, um, and you can imagine, of course, tourism is big business there, but there is a little bit of a historical kind of um, 
anger towards uh, people from the mainland coming in and just coming for vacation and like, you know, making these resorts and like displacing people from their homes. But it's very hard to say no to that money, especially for the state to say no to that money. Right. So, again, how do you are you complacent in that system or do you allow that system to kind of take root and become insidious or how do you fight against it? And I think that we're seeing a lot of this new generation of tour guides and like kind of cultural liaisons and cultural ambassadors. I think they're fighting against it in some really interesting ways. I think they're doing some really cool stuff to kind of circumvent the status quo. And not all of it has to be kind of bombastic, like, you know, like all this, like fight the power down with the patriarch, which I'm very down for. Like, I love it when, I mean, that's the kind of energy I'm all about, but also like a lot of people working through it in kind of more implicit ways, right? Like again, having these tours and planting the seeds in people's head about what it means to be Gullah Geechee or what it means to be a good steward of someone who comes into the community. And I think that that's just as important. So, yeah, I think that to, to very in a long way answer your question, I think that there's a ton of great stuff happening in New Orleans when it comes to like tourism and performance research. And I would love to see more of that kind of pop up. Well, thanks so much. But <laughs> this has been fascinating. And I think that we could probably keep going for a couple of hours. Um, but I do want to thank you for uh, spending some time with us and congratulations on the Ellison Award. And uh, we all look forward to seeing what's going to come out of that. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a real pleasure and an honor. That was our Take on the South. Let us know yours. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at U of SC South. Take on the South is produced by Matt Simmons of the Institute for Southern Studies. Special thanks to Professor Dave Garner of the University of South Carolina School of Music for composing our music. Tune in next time for another Take on the South. Take on the South.